Good morning. Uh, my name is Jim Grossman. I serve here as pastoral intern. Um, and today's sermon today comes from Mark 5, 35 to 43. If you'd turn there with me, uh, we'll start by reading the passage. It is page 711 in the church Bibles, if that helps. Starting in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray and ask God's help as we start today. Lord, we ask you to teach us today from your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us on the cross, for saving us from our sin and an eternity away from you. Please arrange our minds properly and move our hearts to hear your words today, as not from a man, but as the words of God in Scripture. I ask for your help as a mere man to deliver your words that it might be clear to each one of us here what you would have to teach us today through your word. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, today we're continuing uh, in the Gospel of Mark, preaching through the fifth chapter. And here we're confronted with the story of Jairus uh, coming to Jesus, asking to heal his daughter. Jesus had just uh, crossed over the lake from healing the demon-possessed man, and as he lands on shore, a large crowd is gathered around him while he was by the lake. That's in verse 21. Then Jairus, uh, who we are told is a synagogue ruler, came there. He was looking for Jesus because his daughter was very near death. Upon seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly. So far, uh, when we see Jesus at the lakeside, uh, he's had a crowd around him. He's been teaching. In this case, we're not told that he was preaching. He may have been, uh, or maybe he was about to start preaching. Maybe he had just got off the boat and was getting something to eat. Uh, we don't know for sure. Something else to consider is the crowd. Jesus had just left the region of the Gerasenes and left after healing the demon-possessed man. They urged him to leave. So did someone see the boat crossing the lake and start to get a crowd together uh, for when he showed up? And you know, I like to think that through because, you know, this really happened. And if it, uh, we want to know the context of what happened, we should think that through. So it says that while he was by the lake, a large crowd came and gathered around him. Jairus was one of these. 
he had to have heard that Jesus was by the lake, so he ran down to the lake uh, to try and find Jesus. Upon finding him in the crowd, he pleads with him earnestly. Now, I don't know if he interrupted Jesus' teaching mid-sentence um, or not, but certainly he did interject himself into Jesus and the crowd's agenda. No doubt the crowd came to see Jesus and hear from him, and yet it seems they didn't get to. Jairus sort of hijacks the scene and pleads with Jesus to come put his hands on his little daughter so she might be healed and lived. And so, very simply enough, verse 24, so Jesus went with him. And that's interesting. Jesus' agenda for the day, we're not told what it was, but whatever it was, he simply got up and went with Jairus. This reminds me of the story of the centurion man whose servant was at the point of death. In Luke 7, we read that the centurion sent the Jewish elders to plead with Jesus uh, to come and heal the centurion's servant so the servant might live. So Jesus went with them. Before he got to the house, uh, he sent, the centurion sent his friends to tell Jesus not to trouble himself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now both the centurion and Jairus were men of authority. Both knew how authority needed to work, and if it was going to work well and when it works right, those in authority give duties and those under follow them. Both realized that Jesus had the authority, the power to see to their needs, and each approached Jesus with an attitude of, I'll be me, Jesus, you be you, and then things will go right. And as men of authority, this probably would have given them some confidence. Uh, The centurion didn't even request for Jesus to come to his house, just that he give the order that his servant be healed. And Jesus marveled at his great faith and commended him for it. And in this way, though, The story with Jairus' daughter is different. Jairus himself goes and finds Jesus. He doesn't send the Jewish elders first and then second, his friends, to stop Jesus before he gets to his house. He instead goes and asks Jesus to come with him. So then we might conclude that Jairus had less faith than the centurion. You know, Jesus isn't marveling at Jairus' faith, but we shouldn't look down on Jairus. That's important. Jesus didn't. And he didn't deny his request. He wasn't like, can't you see that I'm busy here, Jairus? i got all these people around me um, preaching here. Give me 35 minutes, and then I'll come down and follow with you. And so when Jesus has this man at his feet pleading with him, he doesn't deny him. He simply goes with him. God's timing is not our timing, yes. But he does care about our timing, too. We're temporal creatures that live in a world with time, and God meets us in that. He works in time and history, and he didn't make Jairus wait before he went with him. Jesus met him in his need. So then this crowd follows him, and I would have. uh, Like, okay, well, it looks like we're going to be able to follow Jesus and watch a miracle. I would have went. And it says the crowd did. They followed him, and they pressed around Jesus. And when this woman who was healed stops Jesus, you could probably imagine being Jairus. Your daughter's at the moment of death. Upon hearing this healer was around, he rushes to get his help. He comes to help, but halfway there, 
he turns around and asks who touched him. He starts looking around himself, and now he's talking to this woman, and I'm sure Jairus had to be kind of antsy, like, oh man, come on, come on, come on. Uh, But Jesus, he wasn't concerned for Jairus only. Jesus was concerned for this woman also, and he had met her in her need, and his power was big enough for both of them, both the lady who was sick for 12 years and the 12-year-old little girl. Jesus stopped what he was doing at the lake and right away came with Jairus and his need. Jesus stopped what he was doing for Jairus and met the woman's need. And he also meets us in our need as we come to him and fall at his feet. So Jesus meets us in our need. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I, I had this friend once that uh, he did me wrong. And I mean, he really went behind my back and I found out about it. And when I confronted him on it, he lied to my face, even though I asked him multiple times. And I was really mad at him. I I quit fishing with him, quit going to his house. I wrote him off. Uh, After a while, a mutual friend of ours told me I should forgive him. And I said, no, I've thought about it, and he's not sorry. He needs to ask forgiveness. Uh, If God doesn't forgive men and he sends them to hell, if they don't ask for forgiveness of their sins, then I don't need to forgive him either. He needs to ask me for forgiveness. That Sunday, I went to church. It happened to be the church he attended, and I was sitting in the back, the farthest back chair against the wall, and I wasn't really listening to the sermon. Uh, But when it got time to pray, I had to bow my head and pray. And I could almost hear my friend saying, you should forgive him. And I said, no, God, you don't forgive those who don't repent. And I I was about to ask, why should I? I clear as a bell and sharp as a double-edged sword, penetrating and dividing the heart. The scripture came to mind while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I realized that I had to offer forgiveness, that even if he was dead wrong, I had to make the first step and be willing to offer forgiveness, despite the fact that he was not sorry. And that's what Jesus does for us. He meets us where we are, even when we're not sorry, even when we don't have centurion faith unequaled in all the land, even when we're trembling in fear, like the woman who was sick. Jesus meets us in our need, even when our faith isn't perfect, even when our faith is less than it should be, even if our faith is as tiny as a little bitty mustard seed, he meets us in our need. So then verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men from Jairus' house came and told Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? You can probably imagine Jairus' reaction, that of a father, what he would have been feeling. Yet Jesus ignored what they said. He speaks to us in our need. He told the woman, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And he told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And he has the same message for us about faith. The Bible is riddled with story after story after story about God's faithful. Hebrews 10.38 says the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 11, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous, and when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. 
and without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. All these people were still living by faith when they died. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. By faith, Joseph, when he was near his end, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? Do I even have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and all of the rest of the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, sodden too, killed by the sword. They went about in sheeps and goat skins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. You could say because of their faith, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Abraham believed God, and his, that faith was credited to him as righteousness. And I was thinking that uh, for those of us who believe and have faith, that passage is great. Very encouraging, and also it serves as a great reminder that all of us who are saved are saved by faith, not by our efforts, not in our roles in service to God, not in our gifting, but that in Christ we are all equal before God, that no one is more or less righteous than each other, but that Christ's righteousness is imputed to those of us who believe, and before God we're all at the foot of the cross and saved by faith. But for those who don't believe, then so what? I mean, you don't believe for a reason. I was trying to explain faith to a friend who doesn't believe. And, well, I mean, not really. He used to, but he's just not sure. And I was giving him reasons why we need God. We're sinful. We all know it. You can admit that, right? Yeah, he knows he's done some wrong. But nothing like stealing anything serious or like murder. I mean, like he said, I'm not a monster who kills kittens or anything. What I do wrong, I feel sorry about. 
So if he exists, then I'm sorry, and I think he'll forgive me, but I'm just not sure that he exists. The main question he had was, if God is real, then why not just prove it? Why not reveal it so I can't deny it? That's similar to the question Pastor Joe preached on Saturday, last Saturday with the Thanksgiving message and the question of why there's so much pain in the world and so many bad things, it's why. And my friend's question was, why wouldn't he just show us to himself to us? And the answer is that he already has. He has revealed himself through creation, through working in history, through a nation of people, and now finally came to earth as a man, and God has revealed himself to us. Jesus is God in the flesh. And true, it maybe would have been easier to see him, touch him with our hands like Thomas wanted to after Jesus rose again. But now Jesus reveals himself to the world through his church, through people who believe in a 2,000-year-old historical account of death and resurrection that actually happened. God is revealed through people who are confident in what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Hebrews 11.39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us. We know Jesus because he met our need. He reached into our life and healed us. Our approach to him, or rather our response to Jesus, makes all the difference in the world. The disciples in the storm, uh, they had no faith in, and after it they feared. Jesus saved them from their begging, uh, from the storm at their begging, even though they had no faith. The demon-possessed man, Jesus sought him out. He sought him out in his own condition and healed him, even though he didn't seek Jesus out. So Jesus doesn't always wait for our approach, but our response to him is important. And then after casting out the demon, the people begged him to leave. The woman with a 12-year sickness, as we said last week, she came with faith, but maybe perhaps an imperfect one. Yet Jesus tells her, your faith has healed you. Jairus came and asked in boldness. And then halfway to his house, he's hit with this message from his servants, your daughter is dead. This short portion of Mark, just looking at each group, shows people in real life, some in extraordinary circumstances, from a wild storm, to the depths of darkness, from extraordinary sickness and pain, to the very moment of death itself. And the whole world is watching. Crowds are standing by and watching, asking for proof. Does God really exist? And who is Jesus? Jairus, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. They thought they knew the facts, that at least they knew that dead people don't come back to life. But verse 36 Ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And the Greek word that Mark chose for Jesus telling Jairus not to be afraid carries the effect of um, putting to flight, to flee, uh, be seized with alarm, and it also carries a sense of dread. Jesus was telling Jairus, don't, be flee, don't flee or be seized with alarm. Don't, don't be filled with dread. Just believe. Basically, just believe me. I know they said she's dead and we didn't make it in time, but I've still got the power to help you. So after he tells Jairus this, he didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And again, I think it's helpful to 
Think of the scene. You had Jesus pressed in and around upon by all sides, these people who went to see him do a miracle for the synagogue ruler, who then stops and asks who touched him and speaks with this woman who her faith healed her. And then as he's talking, people rush up to the synagogue ruler and blurt out, she's dead. It's useless. Why waste his time? Sort of anticlimactic for the crowd. They were interrupted at the lakeside. Then they went and followed Jesus. They're all touching him. They weren't all magically healed like the woman was. They didn't come in faith. And then Jesus doesn't let them come and see the miracle. Maybe they tried and he said no. Uh, There must have been people insisting. He did narrow it down and say only these three disciples can come. And so they left the crowd. After leaving the crowd, verse 38, they came upon the home of the synagogue ruler. Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and loudly wailing. This was common practice for that day, believe it or not, in Jewish custom. When there was a death in the family, they would hire professional mourners to come and mourn with them. There was usually even a chief wailer. So it was literally their job to weep and wail in the street. These people saw death often. They didn't have funeral homes. The funeral home was where the person died and the mourners came to them. The after-death professionals, they saw a lot of dead people, probably more than most. And so Jesus' question, why this commotion and wailing, she's not dead, only asleep, was met with laughter. Like, all the facts are against you, Jesus. She is dead. And they don't believe. They just laugh. And I I don't imagine it was a belly laugh. It was probably more incredulous. Like, (laughs) you're kidding, right? She's dead. She's dead, you're nuts. And they mocked him. That one was hard in study. What does he mean, she's only asleep? The best answer is that Jesus was not saying that they were mistaken between the difference between being asleep and dead. You can tell sleeping from being dead. And certainly professional morticians could have. This was a funeral wake. The dead are there. And if you've ever been to an open casket wake, even though you know they're dead, sometimes they look like they're sleeping. And it's sad when a little kid with tear-filled eyes might come up and ask, are they dead now? And sometimes the adult will say, no, they're only sleeping. But in a sense, that is what Jesus was saying. They're only, she's only sleeping. But death is not the end. Those who are going to be resurrected from death, death is not the end. It's only a short rest, a short sleep before new life begins for those who have faith in him. One day we will all be resurrected for judgment. Dan- Daniel says some to everlasting shame and contempt and some to everlasting life. This resurrection of Jairus' daughter wasn't the final resurrection, but it was a picture of how death is like sleep. So then verse 40, he, after he put them all out, so in other words, he pushed them all out, said, this funeral is over, and was essentially hitting the rewind button before she died. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl or little lamb, I say to you, get up. Jesus spoke to her in Aramaic, which is why there is the explanation there, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Most of the New Testament, aside from here and other scattered phrases, is Greek. But most of the people living in the area of Israel didn't speak Greek, not as a first language, and some not at all. But Aramaic was a native tongue for most. 
though Greek was still used in letters and books as the universal language that the Greek Empire had spread through the known world at that time. The other Aramaic being that is used in the New Testament is Epatha, meaning be open in Mark 7, Abba, meaning father, Mark 14, Raka, meaning fool, in Matthew 5, Rabboni, meaning teacher, in John 20, Jesus' words on the cross, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani, meaning my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hosanna, meaning O Lord, save us, and Maranatha, meaning Lord, come, out of 1 Corinthians. So here Jesus speaks, and so far Mark is recorded in Greek, and now he uses the Aramaic. He was speaking to the little girl. It was likely she spoke Aramaic and not Greek. Aramaic was the common spoken language of that day in her region, and he didn't speak Greek or Hebrew to her. He took her by the hand, and as an aside, he becomes unclean, touching a dead person, just like he became unclean when the woman touched him. Um, but as an... <clears throat> He took her by the hand, and he spoke to her in her own language. It's not that languages in and of themselves are magical. Like Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, they're not more powerful than other languages. Greek's not more powerful than Hebrew because it uh, is used in the New Covenant. Hebrew is not more powerful than Greek because it was the language of God's people in the Old Testament scriptures. Aramaic's not more powerful than either because Jesus uses it here or on the cross. God has always spoken to mankind and in words they would understand. And he speaks to this little girl in her language in words she would understand. When I last preached, I noted the immediacy of Mark and his gospel and the nature of the storm. Jesus spoke and the forces of nature immediately stopped. Jesus had displayed his power over natural forces. And after the storm, he arrived on the other side and cast out a legion of demons from a man. Jesus had displayed his power over the forces of evil. The woman who had bled for 12 years was healed, and Jesus spoke to her, saying, Go in peace and be freed from suffering. Jesus had displayed his power over sickness and suffering. And here he spoke, and immediately this girl who was 12 years old stood up and walked around. Jesus had displayed his power over every man's final enemy, death. Fallen humanity's only hope is Jesus. All of the above threats... Demons, sickness, disease, death, they all come as effects of the fall. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of one tree, and they couldn't resist doing that one thing. And if we had the chance to be Adam or Eve, we would have done the same thing they did. The Bible tells us that the law, the command not to eat, that what was contained uh, in the mystery of what is later revealed or rather restated in Scripture in Romans 11:32 that God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. And to the perfectly human mind, that seems unfair. But that is a mind that sees God as unjust and mean, a ruler, rule keeper who wants to harm mankind, when in fact God came as a man to die for all men so that, as the Scripture I shared says, that he might have mercy on us all. The prior two verses to Romans 11:32 help explain it a bit more. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. In Romans, the earlier explanation of the law is really helpful here as well. Four chapters before this, Romans 7 
What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. As Galatians 3.24 says it, so the law was our teacher, the law was our schoolmaster until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. The truth of the matter is that God has revealed himself, taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith. This is a testimony of all Christians that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son of God has life. He who does not have the Son of God, does not have life. So Jesus meets us in our need. In the sting of death, while we were in our sin, he died for us. This story, while Jairus was in his need, he went with him. While Jairus' daughter was dead, Jesus raised her back to life. Then, verse 43, after he raised her back to life, he gave them orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. So thinking about verse 43, uh, what are reasons that he told her, told them to do that? It was very practical not to tell anyone and also to feed their daughter. Telling them to feed their daughter would have been something easy, something they could do. If you think about it, it's pretty compassionate of Jesus. He lets them collect their emotional state, enjoy the moment that she's uh, back to life. He doesn't make them go talk to everyone about it. Sometimes when you hit a heavy situation in life, you don't always want to take calls or inform the whole world. And so this was kind of Jesus, not to send them out, but to let them care for their daughter in the only way they could. It also was practice, practical of Jesus not to tell everyone about it right away. Uh, not that after he left, they wouldn't find out that this girl who was dead is now alive, but practical, practical for them to wait and find out this way so that Everyone in the city wasn't coming up to Jesus, dragging him to the graveyard, saying, uh, Jesus, raise my father from the dead. Please, Jesus, why won't you do this? Um, why won't you bring our loved ones back to life? I mean, I would have wanted that. Uh, but Jairus' daughter, she died again. She wasn't resurrected to live forever after that. that that'll be Jesus' final miracle, his final work to swallow up death. This girl's resurrection was not to be perfected body or final state. Jesus raised this girl to life, showing power over physical death, a foreshadowing of at the end of his ministry on earth, he will show power over sin and death and be resurrected in a new body. But right now, Mark 5, you might say Jesus' main mission before the cross was to preach the gospel. He meets us in time. He meets us in our needs. 
and he took a break from preaching the gospel. He took time to meet people. He took time to care for them, to demonstrate his power over nature, to demonstrate his power over evil demonic forces, his power over sickness and disease, and finally, he demonstrated his power over death. In closing, I'd like to read 1 Corinthians 15.54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are needy. We are unclean men and women who live among a people of unclean lips. We honor you with our words, but often our hearts are far away. As the song says, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. We are in need of you daily to sustain us. Yet in your strength and power, you are our defense and righteousness. Those who have faith in you need your sustaining power. But those who don't believe are, as John 3.18 says, condemned already. The dying world is in need of your gospel. You aren't willing that any should perish, and you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But you came to preach the gospel, to seek and save the lost. Lord, if there are any here today who are in either worship service, who come today in need of your gospel, please reveal yourself to them. Speak to them through your word, and speak to them through your people. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we approach uh, Advent, I'm reminded of the Christmas hymn, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Over the Hills and Everywhere. And as we go forth today and into our weeks, may we communicate the gospel with great power and much love. Go ahead, go tell it on the mountain.